Let us now turn to the Word of God for our learning, for our instruction in righteousness. We turn to the epistle to the Thessalonians, the first epistle, Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians and the fifth chapter. We commence our reading at the verse 1. Let us hear God's holy word together. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together, and edify one another, even as also ye do. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you, and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that be are unruly, comfort and the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men, see that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesyings, prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with an holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. This is the word of the Lord, and may the Lord be pleased to bless that public reading of his precious word. Let us pray. Well, dear friends, I'll ask you to please turn your very prayerful attention to those words that I read to you and you're hearing there in the first epistle to the Thessalonians and the fifth chapter. The fifth chapter here of First Thessalonians really deals with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 1, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I should write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. There were those that were teaching uh, that indeed the Savior had already come, and uh, he is yet to come. We are here living now in the year 2023, and the Lord has not come, but he will come suddenly. He will come quickly as a thief in the night. Now, we're going to look with the Lord's help at the verse 22, which comes in the context of the Lord's coming and our preparation for that coming. Either we will be taken first 
and we will be taken to glory, or he will come suddenly. Whatever the case, we must live godly in this present world. So I take from my text here this afternoon the verse 22, but let me read from the verse 21. Prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil. This is the last of seven of what we read here, very short and succinct and very crisp directives that begin in the verse 16. There are seven directives given to believers. And I need to remind us of this as we come to the message this afternoon, although there will be a gospel element to the preaching of God's word this afternoon. Essentially, chapter 5, in fact, the whole of this epistle is given to Christians, to believers. But I do want to bring something in of the gospel this afternoon, but that's not primarily what we're going to be doing. I want us to take up this commandment that is the last of seven direct uh, commands that the Lord gives, directives to the Lord's people. And I trust that this will make even the unsaved think very soberly about sin. As Christians, we are primarily concerned about glorifying God and avoiding sin and even the appearance of evil in our lives. And it's verse 22 that I want us to think about with the young people here this afternoon. Abstain from all appearance of evil. As I said, this is the last of seven very short and succinct, crisp directives that begin at the verse 16. Let's look at them. And we can divide them really into two categories. The first are positive commandments, verses 16 to 18. Rejoice evermore. And let me say, first of all, that it's only the Christian that can truly rejoice because he knows his sins are forgiven. And he knows, or she knows, he has eternal life in Christ Jesus. And therefore, whether trial or tribulation or difficulty, whether things are going well for us, and whether we're under trial or not, we are commanded to rejoice evermore, for we have a blessed end. The second positive commandment, pray without ceasing. In everything, the Christian is to pray to God for direction, for leading in life, and pray that he will indeed walk in the ways of godliness. The Christian is to pray without ceasing. In everything, we are to commit everything in our lives to God. That's the Christian life. We're no longer our own, but we are the Lord's, and we are to ask the Lord to lead us and to direct us in everything. In everything, pray. In everything, give thanks. That's the third. Giving thanks. Even in trial, we give thanks to God. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Give thanks. Pray without ceasing. Rejoice evermore. Then the second category have to do with warnings. We can say these are warnings, things that we are not to do. Verse 19, the second category, quench not the spirit. And then secondly, despise not prophesyings or even preachings or even the preaching of the word. And that's how we're to understand it here. Some take it to be literal prophesying. Well, if that's the case, we know that prophecy will cease when the canon of Scripture is complete. But some take it to mean despise not preachings or the preaching of the Word. And uh, they take this uh, because of what follows in the verse 21. Prove all things. Test even that preaching. Hold fast that which is good. You may not agree with everything that you hear in the preaching, but hold on to what is good. It's an old saying, when you're chewing on the ministry, spit out the bones and uh, consume the meat of the ministry. Hold on to that which is good. Hold fast to that which is good. That's true. 
And then the last of the negative, the thing we are to avoid, abstain from all appearance of evil. And that's the subject that I want us to take up this evening. So we have here these positive injunctions, these positive, these mandates or directives. And uh, by the way, it's the Spirit of God that is giving these things to the Apostle Paul for us to think about, not just to think about, but to actually do. These are our commandments that the Lord would have us to do and certain things that we are to avoid in the verses 19 to the verse 22. And so we need both, don't we, in the Christian life. The Christian life, we must say, there are two handrails. Certain things we must avoid doing and certain things we must do. The Christian life and the Christian road to that eternal life. Remember, we are called to enter through that narrow door, which is Christ, and the narrow way. The door leads to a narrow way, doesn't it? And there are certain things that we must do, and there are certain things we must avoid doing. And we want to think here about this. I suppose the the New Testament is full of this idea of doing certain things, and not doing certain things. Remember what the Apostle Paul said to young Timothy. If you just turn there to Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, he says, Flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness. The Christian life is not just about doing certain things, but it is about fleeing certain things. He says, Flee youthful lusts, but follow righteousness. And so we need to be very careful in the life that we are not only doing the positive things, but we're avoiding all the negative things. Flee also useful, youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace. These are the examples of the righteous things we should be following. Faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Those who are truly born again desire these things and want to serve the Lord. Now, whether we are saved or not, we ought to be concerned about sin and even the appearance of sin in the life, especially if we're saved. If we're not saved, we ought to be concerned about sin because we're told for this sake, the wrath of God is coming. If you turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul here is speaking to Christians, and then he says in verse 1, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, in other words, he has become your life and your way of life, shall appear, then ye shall also appear with him in glory. And then he says these words, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry. And then he says this, mark this down, for which things sake, that's those sins, the wrath of God cometh. God's wrath is coming because of sin, to judge sin. So we ought to be concerned about sin, especially if you're unsaved. You know, you mustn't say that uh, sin is not going to have a consequence on your life. The fact of the matter is you're going to die because of sin. The wages of sin is death. But then there is a second death. Then there is a judgment. It's appointed unto man once to die, but after that, the judgment. So you ought to be concerned. Men will be judged for their sin. It says, therefore, which things sake the wrath of God cometh. Now, the Christian is saved to live a holy life, a life of righteousness. You know, we're not just saved to go to heaven. We're not just saved to enjoy heaven itself, but we are saved to live a a different life. We're saved chiefly to live to the glory of God. 
That's really why we're saved. Not just simply for the sake of holiness. Not holiness for the sake of holiness. Holiness is to glorify God. To honor him. The God who has called you and called you with an holy calling. That's the essence of a Christian's life. And here this verse 22, our text, abstain from all appearance of evil. You see, as we look at this first command, or or this last command, in the first place, I want us to think about here the command, first of all, and then we'll think of the reasons for the command. It's the last of seven in a short succession here of very crisp and succinct statements of things that we ought to do if we're saved. But let us look at the command here, and then we'll look at the reason. Abstain from all appearance of evil. The Apostle Paul here says it's not enough just to avoid evil in life if you're a Christian. It's not enough just to avoid evil, but you must avoid even what looks like evil. You must avoid even the appearance of it, even looking like you're doing something wrong. This is actually a command. It's not an option. And it ought to be something which the Christian desires to do. Now, if that desire is not in you, there's a serious problem as I trust we will touch on this afternoon, is something fundamentally wrong if we don't want to avoid the appearance of evil. Now, it is a command here. Now, what should it include? When we think of this commandment, avoid, it says here, abstain from all appearance of evil. Well, if you were to do a study in the Greek I'm not expecting that you would. But when you consider the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, you may wish to turn there, but he says in Matthew 6 verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, the word there, evil, but deliver us from evil, is what we call It's in the nominative case. That means in the Greek, when it's in that form, that it has to do with a person. It has to do with the evil one. Deliver us, literally, from the evil one. Deliver us from all temptation. And now we know Satan puts temptation there, doesn't he? So in that nominative case, it specifically and more implicitly, implies the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. Not just evil in our own hearts. Satan is subtle. He's very sly. So here in the first place, we must avoid all temptation that even Satan may put before us. James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I often hear people say, well, it was the devil, he tempted me. The Bible tells us, doesn't it, to resist the devil and he will flee. Satan, he's always calculating how he might destroy others. And really, not only Satan, but sin can destroy us, can't it? We've got to be even not appearing ourselves to be evil-like. Now think of what I'm saying. Satan, we know, is evil, and he is styled as the destroyer. But you you yourself, as a Christian, if you're born again, you must avoid the appearance of being stealth-like to other people. Do you destroy other people with your lips? You know, it's easy to do that. You can be self-like. You can be known as somebody that has a very harsh and vindictive spirit. You know, James says, where do envyings come from? 
Where does bitterness, where does malice come from? He says, straight from the pit. He says, that's not the wisdom from God. The wisdom from God is, first of all, from above. And first of all, he says, it's peaceable. And it's easy to be entreated. We have to remember that Satan can even work in our own hearts. Remember James and John, when they came with the Lord Jesus to that city, and the city didn't hear him. And uh, they said, well, would you like us to call down fire from heaven? He said, you, you know not what spirit you're of. We have to be very careful to avoid the appearance of even being like the evil one, with a, with a wrong spirit. Avoid even all appearance of evil. Do we care about what other people think about us? What kind of a heart we have? Because if you do, it shows that you care about your testimony about the Lord Jesus, whether he really has begun a good work in you or not. You care about that. It, it, it troubles me, and I'm sure it troubles others, when we see professing Christians who don't seem to have a conscience about having harsh feelings and hard language toward those who are their enemies. It ought to. It ought to trouble us. Avoid all appearance of the evil one, because that's exactly how he is. Unkind. Now, Second Corinthians 2.10, this comes in the context of a brother in the church who had sinned and many had not received him back. He allegedly confessed his sin, but many were being overly harsh with him. It says in Second Corinthians 2.10, To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, if you forgive the brother and he has repented to the church and he has confessed his sin, well then, if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it, for your sakes I forgave it in the person of Christ. Now notice, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. You see, Satan can get an advantage over our wrong and sometimes very censorious spirit. We are to call out sin when sin is there, but we are not to have a hypocritical spirit in the life. And so we are even especially to avoid every appearance of sin in the heart, because that will sadly affect our testimony and our witness, especially to younger Christians. We've got to be very careful and don't excuse sin. You know, we, we've got to own up to it. James 1.13, Let not a man say, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Now, remember, James says, the wrath of man, it doesn't produce righteousness, does it? But really death, spiritual death. What should we desire in the life, above all? We should desire to know Christ. You see, this whole idea here of where he says, notice in the verse 22, abstain from all appearance of evil, is we should never want the world or anyone to think that we are still part of this world or we think like this world. We act like this world. What do you desire most in your life? Many people desire friendships. And I suppose when we're, when we're growing up, we, we realize 
And we begin to realize how fulfilling and enjoyable relationships can actually be. Can they not be? You, you enjoy friendships. And, uh, but that can be a trouble to us. Friendships and this desire to want to be accepted and welcomed by everyone can be very dangerous to us because we're so weak inside. We want to be accepted by others. But friends, what do you desire most of all? Whose smile do you desire? We should desire the Lord's smile. We should desire his approval, not other people's. And uh, it, it's so easy, isn't it? When you're amongst a group of people to want to please them. And you can find yourself saying things that you should never have said. Who, who do you desire to really please in this life? Charles Haddon Spurgeon was renowned for his helpful sayings. He said, he who does not long to know more of Christ does not know him yet. You desire to know people more. But how much do you desire to know Christ? You know, we can take a great interest in people. As I said, for some people, friendships and relationships are so important to them. But what about Christ? How much time do you, do you want to get to know him? And surely this is the one friend we would never want to displease. The friend of sinners. The one who, if you claim to be a Christian, who bled for you, who died for you, who bore damnation for you. Surely he is the one that you put first. He's not somewhere down the list of your friends. Now you may have a list of friends that you have in your mind, but surely this is the one. Christ is the one that you should honor first and foremost in your life. And uh, we have to be very careful when we're amidst friends that we don't deny him. And uh, we find ourselves using words and expressions. Think of Peter. When Peter denied him, how he began to curse. Even before that young damsel. I know him not, for he was afraid. And the fear of man does it not bring a snare. And we've got to, first of all, we've got to avoid the evil one. And the evil within us. To avoid the appearance of evil, we first have got to deal with the risings of evil in our own corrupt nature. Pride, this desire to be accepted, this worry about what people say about us and what they don't say about us. Why am I saying the things I say? Is it to be liked by this person or that person? Why am I really living to please Christ? That's the essence, there ought to be the essence of the Christian life. It's that point, at that point, we either win or lose the battle, don't we? Who are you living for? If we don't sort out that matter in our lives now, we will fail at some point. If Christ is not at the top of our list of pleasing, we will fail him at some point. We've got to mortify, we've got to abstain the first risings of any pride, of any temptation to sin in the heart. That's where you begin, really, with even avoiding the appearance of evil. Deal with the rising of evil in your, your heart first. Do your unsaved and my unsaved acquaintances, what do they see in us? Do they see a love for Christ? Do you behave with them the way you would behave at church? It's interesting. Because if not, there's an inconsistency there. And it's not right. It's not healthy. Is it? We should be the same wherever we are. Our language, our conversation, the topics we discuss should all be the same. We should not taint our conversations with anything that is unholy. Abstain even from evil jokes. 
wrong spirit. If you notice uh, in chapter 4, verse 3, the word abstain is used there. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. It's It's a very strong word. It's completely avoid. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Now, something else, secondly, what else does it mean? It's not just avoiding the evil one and the risings of evil in our own hearts, but avoiding that which is borderline. Secondly, all appearance of evil. Not necessarily that which is is actually even wrong, but something that maybe it might be wrong. It's questionable. You must avoid even the appearance of it. You might be doing something wrong. If we are seriously exercised Christians, and I hope that we are, we'll be about pleasing God, not ourselves. And and we won't be doing something that is questionable. And we'll have to give an account for it soon. We have to be very careful. You know, if, if something is, you're not sure whether it's right, best not even do it. And this applies to things down to modesty of clothing, words that we use sometimes. Uh, we speak about minced oaths. You know, these are not helpful things. I, I don't want to mention some of those minced oaths, but maybe you can think of, what is a minced oath? It's sort of a substitute for a swear word. It's interesting, the Australian language. Um, there are a number of mince oaths for Christ. And I'll perhaps write down some of them for you later if you want. I won't mention them from the pulpit. But Australia is quite well known for mince oaths. This country is too. There are lots of substitutes for swearing and taking Christ's name in vain. We've got to think about what we say. We don't want to offend God, especially. Whether or not it offends men or not. We wouldn't want to offend God. We wouldn't want to offend our conscience. There are lots of things, I suppose. Social media is another thing. We can easily give the impression, uh, you know, by things that we like, that we show an approval of something, and, and it's clearly wrong. Maybe something, maybe the subject's okay, but uh, the language that is used and the person that has written it, we would never associate with. Well, why would you even give the appearance of that? And say, or... or, or, or Make somebody believe that you're actually following that person. Or, or following, so we've got to be very careful, don't we? And we're not being legalistic. But we, we do not want the watching world to think that we're part of the world anymore. The world that we've left, this evil world, and that we, we think like the world. We want the world to know that we have left the world. And that we, we belong to Christ. That surely ought to be in the heart. Why would we give the appearance to the world of the things that the world speaks well of and that we know that our Lord completely disapproves of? It can have a serious detriment to our witness. You know, the world will put you on a pedestal, and when you fall, you really fall, and you become the source of ridicule. They won't help you then. In Hebrews 12, verse 1, we read, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience. Wait. Lay aside every weight. Now, if you were to run a marathon, if you were to run a race, you don't take a weight with you. You leave it behind. And there are some things that are not helpful anymore. To you, So why, why would you carry them? 
And certain practices and certain things that we, we used to do, what, they're just going to hinder you now in the life. So even those things that are borderline. And then thirdly, tolerating even the appearance of evil. You tolerate the appearance of evil. First of all, going back to the previous point, borderline things. That shows a lack of, if you tolerate those things, and then if you tolerate even the appearance of evil, it shows a lack of concern for the glory of God in your life. And therefore it shows a lack of love for Christ in your life. Oh, Matthew Henry comments, He who is shy of the appearances of each sin will not long abstain from the actual commission of sin. Let me repeat that. He who is shy of the appearance of sin will not long abstain from the actual commission of sin. In other words, if you are close to it, it will not be long until you go on in the actual sin itself. Adam Clark remarks, sin not and avoid even the appearance of it. Do not drive your morality so near to the bounds of evil as to lead lead even weak persons to believe that you actually touch, taste, or handle it. Let not the form of it appear with you or among you, much less any substance. I was reminded by Adam Clark, he's speaks of an old Chinese proverb. you perhaps heard of it. Uh, Never tie your shoelace in a cucumber field. Do you understand that? You could be thought to be stealing the cucumbers out of the field if you're tying your shoelace. And the other part of the proverb is, under a plum tree, do not stop to settle your cap under your head. On your head, should I say. And so there's the idea. You're avoiding the appearance of stealing. You're avoiding all kinds of things. You should avoid from these things because you do not want to dishonor Christ. I know in my own case, and I know some people think this is strange, but even today, you know, you go in the self-checkout, in the supermarkets, I still always print a receipt. And the reason for that, and I know there are people saying, oh, well, um, you know, there are plenty of trees that are being lost and so on. Well, there is so much, the supermarkets will tell you this, there's so much theft today in supermarkets and people taking more and more because of the self-checkout system that I actually print a receipt and I make sure that on my way out I'm... I've got it quite visible in my hand because I never want, as a minister, anybody to think that I may even be taking something. I want them to see I have a a receipt. That's just my own thinking. That's another reason why our family have never, when we're shopping in the supermarket, we'd never eat anything before we've paid for it. Because we want to avoid the appearance of any evil. Now, we are to have great wisdom in this life, aren't we? We've got to think about our behaviors. Here, God is forbidding us even to give the appearance of evil. He says, abstain from it. In Romans chapter 14, you may wish to turn there. We have... uh, This principle brought to the church. And there's this argument. There are those who know that there's only one God. And uh, yet there are others that have been used to not eating meat because they were offered to idols. But we can grieve even other Christians. And they not fully alert to these things. Romans 14, verse 15, But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably or in love. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. 
Let not then your good be evil spoken of. You know that you're allowed to eat meat, but why would you do it if you're going to cause another brother to stumble? You know you're perfectly within your right to eat, but why would you do this? Don't let your evil, your, your good, be spoken evil of. That's what he says there. So you, we can take that in that context. But in terms of the, the whole of the Christian life, you think about somebody like Joseph in the Old Testament. Do you remember how Joseph was a faithful testimony in the land of Egypt, in the house of Potiphar, and then later second under Pharaoh? And remember his master's wife, how he refused to lay with her. And day after day she waited in for him. What did he do? He avoided even being with her. He avoided even the appearance of evil. If you notice, if you just turn to Genesis 39, verse 7, and it came to pass after these things we read concerning Joseph and his rise, of course, to fame, but he would have to go, he was wrongly charged with her rape, He went into the prison, didn't he, after this? And it came to pass, Genesis 39, verse 7, after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wotteth not what is with me in the house, and he hath committed all that he hath into my hand. There is none greater in this house than I, Neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee. But thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? His primary concern was not to sin against God. I want you to notice that first. Now secondly, notice, and it came to pass as she spake to Joseph day by day. She, she wouldn't relent on this. And he, that he hearkened not unto her, he didn't listen to her to lie by her, now notice, or to be with her. He completely avoided her. He wouldn't even be in the same room with her. He utterly avoided her. Then one time he had to go and get papers in the house, and uh, he didn't know there was nobody else in the house, but he, he took what he had, and then she took the opportunity. And then he fled. But of course the Lord took care of that. But he took all the necessary steps to avoid the appearance of evil. All the certain, nobody could ever accuse him of anything. And so there was never a witness against him. And of course her lie was exposed in the end. Well, so much for the command, but let us look at the reasons why this commandment here in verse 22. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Well, firstly, for God's glory. And then we're going to see, secondly, for our own sanctification. And thirdly, for our own safety. So first of all, for God's glory. And let me say, young people, God's glory should never be down the list somewhere. But it should be right at the very top. Even before our safety. Let me put it to you that way. And even before our sanctification, because this is what God says, and if what God says, it's right, and it will be good for me. Whether or not the world says so or not. God's glory should never be somewhere down the list. You see, if Christ has died for us, if he's saved us, if he has taken all of our punishment why would we desire not to honor him? Why would we desire to show the world that we're still part of this world? Whereas we're not. We're different. We've been saved to serve God. We're now a child of God by the grace of God, and we live to glorify God. And we should never want the world to think, well, we're part of it anymore. How could we deny such a friend as the Lord Jesus? 
So our language, our speech, when we're with the unsaved, should be the same as when we are with God's people. And the things that we say and do, the choices should be the same, as if God's people were there, or as if Christ was there. If it's not the same, you're a man-pleaser. And you're not pleasing God. We're told, look at the verse 19, quench not the Spirit. You can quench the Holy Spirit. You can grieve the Holy Spirit by showing love to this world and not living for the glory of God. It shows a lack of love. Being careless about the appearance of evil can also lead us to, as we've already touched on, being careless about committing the evil itself. If you're careless about it, First of all, it shows that you're not bothered about what others think, nor what God thinks. And then more than likely, you'll commit the sin itself. You hear about how when people go on holidays, particularly single people, unless they're married, they shouldn't be sharing a room or anything like that. All kinds of things we can do. Uh, If you're a Christian... You have to be very careful with your relationships and staying over late in people's houses. There's all kinds of things. You have to be very, very careful about what we watch. Like what I said earlier, what we like on social media, what we approve of. See, our hearts are such that if we accommodate the appearance of evil and we're insensitive to God's reputation, we become insensitive to committing the sin itself. It's a subtle thing, isn't it? Proverbs 4, verse 14 says, Enter not into the path of the wicked, and go not in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Pass not by it. Turn from it and pass away. I remember an old friend of mine, he used to come and help me in the open air. He's moved away now. But when we used to go and walk through the town, if we passed by a pub or a bar, he would, with me, insist that we cross the other side of the road. And the reason was his past life. He spent so many years in places like that. He made it a habit to cross the road. Now, you may call that legalism, but he was just being careful. And I think he was so affected by his past. And I wasn't going to interfere with that. It's only right, isn't it? You see, this avoiding all appearance of evil, and I suppose he, when he first became a Christian, he, he, wanted, he was concerned about his witness. Because he was known as uh, part of his work. He used to be a, a fiddler in an Irish band uh, years ago. And uh, he wanted everyone to know. He, not only was he concerned about going to such places, but uh, he was concerned about his witness to other people. And why would you want to give the appearance that you're still engaged in that way of life? You see how this command even regulates our behavior. And in all to, how we avoid the appearance of all evil. And secondly, under this point, we keep a maximum distance from sin, don't we? We are too, in the Christian life, or the impression of it. If God has really done a work of grace in your heart and my heart, if we are forgiven, how can we possibly want to get near sin again? We want to... Keep away from it as far as possible for the safety of our souls and for the witness, the Christian testimony. You know, it's easy to make an impression, isn't it? People can make an impression at church or you take notes. It's easy to take notes and give the impression that you're walking with the Lord. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with taking notes. It's a good thing if you take notes. But, you know, impressions can be misleading. Can't they? Very misleading. 
And it's easy to make an impression, though. It's easy to make an impression for wrong. You see, if you do something that appears evil, how easy it is, and how hard is it to get your testimony back? Very hard, isn't it, to get that testimony back? The great need, I feel, of the church today is not more sermons, not more knowledge, but godly Christians. Christians that are zealous for God's glory. That's what we need something else, the influence on other Christians. We can not, not only cause unbelievers to stumble and to ridicule the gospel. But believers, who we ought to be a, a witness to and an example to. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.23, All things are lawful to me or for me. But all things are not expedient. Not everything is expedient or, or helpful. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Not everything edifies. Therefore, even your speech, what you say, should be words of edification. You know, you might quite easily give the appearance of evil in something that you say. It may not necessarily be wrong, but think about what we say we ought to. Because other people will gauge what's going on in your heart, or may or may not gauge, but it's often that they will. They know what you're thinking about. As a man thinks, so is he in his heart, the Scriptures say. We have to be very careful. But lastly, let me say, even our Lord was concerned not to give the appearance of evil. If you turn with me to Matthew 17, you know this occasion concerning the temple tax. In uh, Jewish law, of course, Christ yet hasn't gone to the cross and the ceremonial law and the temple tax and all the Jews had to pay their annual tax to the temple. It's also called the atonement money. And, uh, well, the Lord Jesus and the disciples, as it were, were collared on their way through and asked about this tribute money. Verse 24, and when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and saith, Doth not your master pay tribute? He saith, Yes. And when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of not their own children or of strangers? Peter saith unto him, Of strangers. Jesus saith unto him, Then are the children free. Now notice this, notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go thou to the sea and cast an hook and take up the fish that the take up the fish that first cometh up. When thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money that take and give unto them for me and thee. You see, the Lord Jesus was concerned here that these Jews not be offended, that they think that the temple tax was not to be paid. The Lord Jesus Christ did everything that was lawful. He didn't want to be seen as some renegade, although he owned the temple, although he owned all the fishes in the sea. Now, what does he mean here? Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them. He says, I don't want to offend them. You shouldn't offend them. We shouldn't offend them. Peter, do the children of the kingdom pay tribute? Peter, you're in the kingdom. Peter, you believe that I am the son of the living God. Peter, you are born again. 
Peter, you know that I am the Christ. The Lord Jesus was going to die for Peter's sins. You see, it's called the atonement money. That's what it was called in the Old Testament. The temple tax. Every man had to pay a half shekel. It was called the atonement money. And the Lord Jesus, you see, he paid the atonement for his people. The children go free. Peter, you're free, but I do not want to offend others. I do not want to give the appearance of evil. The Lord Jesus, what he did was lawful and legal. But what he did for Peter was extraordinary, wasn't it? The Lord Jesus, he did this for all of his people. He went to the cross and he paid the debt of their sin. And if he has paid the debt of our sin, why would we want him, his name, to be blasphemed in this world? You see, when we are saved, we have real liberty. We are free. The children, it says here, are free. We are free from the curse of the law. We, as it were, don't pay our way to heaven. Christ has paid our debt. He has earned for us a righteousness. We are bought with a price. We're no longer our own. But you see, that being no longer our own shows that we belong, and it means we belong to God, and we show it in the life. We show that we belong to Christ. We show that we belong to God. We don't live like the world. We don't think like the world. And we're so thankful what Christ has done. Christ would literally pay for his atonement. The fish here was a miracle. This fish producing this money. Let me say the cross is a miracle. Because there at the cross, the greatest exchange took place. Christ took the people that he would save. He took their sins upon himself. Isaiah says our sins were laid on him. Now if our sins were laid on him, why would we ever in this world want to give the appearance that belonging to Christ, we can still live in sin? We can't. Paul said, How shall we who were dead to sin live any longer unto it? Why would we ever want to give the appearance? You see, your Christian liberty and my Christian liberty does not allow us to live to ourselves anymore. We are set free to serve Jesus Christ. So, he should own our relationships. He should own our uptime and our downtime. Even what we do on our holidays. Even what we do in our time of rest. That belongs to Christ. Everything belongs to Jesus Christ. Every hour of the day belongs to him. Even our sleeping belongs to him. You make sure you get enough sleep. You need to. Because that body of yours is Christ's. And you, like me, we have to look after the things that Christ has saved and procured to himself. Our bodies, our time, the things we write, the things we don't write, the things we say, the things we don't say, everything is Christ's. And we are to serve him and love him. Peter, the children go free. Why? Because Peter, I'm the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. My children are the ones the father has given me. Spiritual children. And they live for me. And they own me in this life. And even, you see, Peter, we don't want to give them an excuse to speak evil 
do we, Peter? Well, in everything in the Christian life, we must avoid all appearance of evil. Our master was concerned not to give the appearance of evil. Let us likewise in all that we say and do. Because you see, this is really the witness, isn't it? The great witness, you know, you can hand out as many tracts as you want. You can preach. But I tell you, your whole life is a sermon, friend. Because my life is a sermon. I might get three tests a week by this church. And that's the sermons that I deliver. But you know what? My one life, my life every day, is a test and a testimony whether I am Christ's or not. That's it. When Christ, who is your life, shall appear, then shall ye appear with him in glory. Is he your life? Well, the unsaved, I close with this. You ought to be concerned with sin. And when God saves you, he doesn't just simply save you to take you to heaven, but as you might live a holy life, pleasing to him and walking, and that you are very concerned never to give the appearance of evil in your life, to never discredit your Savior. May God bring that salvation to souls here this afternoon, for his name's sake. Amen.